Um, if you have your Bibles, open to Ephesians 2, 12 through 22. You know, I'm, I, I speak irregularly enough that usually I, I talk uh, once in the Old Testament, twice in the, or in, in the next time in the New Testament, and I've just rotated. However, um, I just wanted to have uh, an opportunity to go through something a chapter and just kind of drill in and um, exposit the text and and teach from that. And so this passage should look familiar to some of you if you were here um, a few weeks, I I guess it would have been in June, um, when I did a sermon or a teaching on Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Um, You know, with that, uh, the question that we begin to ask when when we go into a text is, who is this written to, for what purposes? Um, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, to the Ephesians, to, with, the, with kind of the purpose and intent to unite the saints in Ephesus. Now, uh, oftentimes when Paul writes a letter, he'll, he'll state uh, up front, usually there's an occasion for writing. So, you know, you have in Galatians, there's a heresy going around, and Paul wants to address that heresy, and so he writes to them, and in um, other other um, letters, there's a specific problem that Paul's addressing. But however, in Ephesians, it's it's kind of a general letter. It's this plea and uh, um, encouragement to be united to each other. Um, the idea is this, that we need to be both united in the church, but also in our relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, uh, even slaves and owners, because of the redemptive work, the unifying work that Christ has achieved on the cross. And so let's just kind of keep that in mind, especially this idea that uh, Ephesians is written to a Gentile audience, in which I will unpack that a little bit more um, in, the, in the talk itself. Let me read aloud 11 through 22. It says, and this is God's word, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the, uh, the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He uh, who has made us both one has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for uh, this day. This is a truly beautiful day in which you have given us together to um, be 
with one another in community to worship in both spirit and in truth. Lord, would you soften our hearts to your word? Lord, we come to you with stress, anxiety, concern about family. And Lord, I pray that in this moment together, that this would be a continuation of what Dan and the worship band was singing, that we would just now move into your word and into praising you, and that we would be refreshed and renewed by your spirit. Father God, we are thankful for your word in which your plan of redemption is worked out, and we see embodied in the life of Christ, who is our Redeemer. And it's in his name we pray, amen. I'm going to be intentional about slowing down. One person one time referred to me as a caged lion, Stan Langhofer actually, as a caged lion. So Stan, I'm going to slow down today. Um, Let me ask you a question. Uh, What is your salvation for? What are we saved for? Have you ever thought about that? If somebody says, what is your salvation for? What, as a Christian, what has it accomplished? What would you say? One might answer, well, I've been saved so that I can have eternal life. Another might answer, uh, I've, been, I've been saved so that I can avoid eternal punishment. And another might say, well, I've, I've been saved so that I can enjoy eternity with Jesus. And all those points are spot on. They're correct. Yes, that's right. We have been saved for those purposes. That's exactly right. But what in relation to each other does that mean? For instance, when I answered that question, I said, I, right? We used the personal pronoun, I have been saved for these purposes. But what does it mean for us? What implications does it have for us as a body? What does our salvation mean? Mike last week focused on um, Romans 7, and uh, it was titled, A New Me, in which Mike kind of unfolded the, the implications of the old man coming to know Jesus and now the new man and what that tension looks like within us as we take off the old man and put on the new man and, and how we are supposed to walk in truth and continue to put off the old and put on the new. And it was a great ser- sermon and it was titled A New Me. Well, this week it's, it's kind of a playoff mic and it's called A New You, but when I say New You, I mean it in the southern sense, which is Jimmy, he's from South Carolina, who would often refer to it as y'all. Really, I really struggle to say y'all, but that's what I'm talking about, okay? What does it mean for y'all? What, it mean, what does it mean for us as a body to have been redeemed by Christ? You see, the gospel doesn't only transform individuals solely for individuals' sake, Yes, we are saved so that we might have eternal life, that we might avoid the consequences of sin, and that we might live and re- with Jesus while he reigns. But we're, it's more than that. Salvation has to mean more than that. It has to have a fuller uh, experience than just what it means to us. It also has, has to do with what it means to or for us as a group. Um, Last time, when I went through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, the emphasis was on what you, you individually, this is where you're at, you were enslaved, you were dead, you walked in unrighteousness, and now God has done this, and now what Paul is doing is that he's kind of implying or applying what it means horizontally, what does that mean for our relationships, because ultimately Paul knows that the struggle for us is to forget who once or who we once were prior to Christ, but also not to enjoy 
the benefits of what Christ has done and is doing right now so that we live in a community in unity with one another. I believe in this passage Paul is suggesting uh, this, that since Jesus has redeemed his people, we must live united together. Now, how do we do that? How do we live united together? You know, this is a group of around 200 plus people, you know, and, and some of you, I know your names and some I've never met before. And so what does it mean for us today to live united together as a body of Christ, living out God's purposes for us? Well, I think there's three, at least three truths, more, much more could be said, but they're outlined in your, in your handout. And it says, it's this, that first we must remember who we once were. Second, we must rejoice in what Christ has done. And third, we must enjoy or we must embrace or we must live as we really are together. That's kind of, for those that like that uh, neat structure, that's what I've, what, where I want to go today. So with the first point, that we must remember who we once were, uh, that's an important aspect that I want to start at. So uh, again, uh, Paul in, in the first part of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, uh, talks about how individually we were, tres- we were walking in, uh, in, in sin, that we were dead in trespasses, uh, that we were kind of co-partners uh, with the evil one, and that there's that great and wonderful but, but despite all that, God rescued us, that he redeemed us. But do you notice what's going on there? Is that it's this very horizontal, or excuse me, vertical relationship. This was us in relation to God. But as I read the passage, did you notice there's a lot of language of one? That there was these two separate groups, and now they're united. That that they that one was of the uncircumcised group, and one was the circumcised group. And so what Paul has in mind is this this horizontal plane. What is what does God's redemptive work mean in, 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 relationally for us as a body? And the first thing that he, he says is that we, we must remember who we once were. Well, what, what does it mean? Why does he want us to remember who we once were? Well, let's think about that. The command to remember is often a repeated act in the Bible. For instance, we'll take the Lord's Supper next week, and Jesus tells us to do this, to take the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Him. What are we remembering? Well, we're remembering Christ's sacrificial and atoning death on the cross. Elsewhere, especially in the Old Testament, you see this a lot. God tells Israel to remember His saving works when they were in Egypt and He brought them out of the desert. He says, remember and to do this lest you forget. And so there's this idea that we are supposed to remember um, what, what God has done. So, what I think Paul means in this situation is that he's, as one commentator kind of put it, is that this remembering that Paul's getting at isn't just a recollection of facts and situations, but it is to remember in a way that evaluates a situation and then acting upon it as a result. We are to remember, to call attention to, and to appreciate where we were and where we now are. So what, what is it that we are to remember Paul is not afraid to give us the hammer, all right? And, and, it's, and he can give you the hammer of truth in which it's like, okay, you're refining me, Paul, back off because you're exposing too much of my sin. Or he can give you the hammer of grace, which is an oxymoron in some sense, in which it's totally refreshing. And this is one of the situations in a passage that it's both. 
that Paul wants us to remember that we were considered Gentiles, uncircumcised, alienated, strangers, and separated from God. Now, one of the cool things um, about our church is I know at least two here, I'd usually point this out because, and say that none of us are Jewish by blood, but I know of at least two that worship with us that are Jewish by blood, so it's kind of a, a cool dynamic. But anyhow, remember for a moment whom this letter was written to, right? Gentiles. Uh, it's clear in Acts 19 that in Ephesus that there are, you know, there is a synagogue, that there are Jewish uh, people there, but... Um, Paul is primarily addressing Gentiles who, by definition, were pagans. And it only takes a little bit of a familiar reading with uh, the New Testament to kind of figure out what some of those practices of the Gentiles or the pagans were. Well, what were they? They were uh, sexual immorality. They were drunkenness. It was temple prostitution. It was witchcraft. It was different types of sorcery. There was a whole host of activities that Paul is saying, remember That was you. You were born into that. You were born part of the uncircumcised. That that name, it it kind of is softened in our translations. But that that is not a kind term. That is an insult. And so it's hard for us to understand what kind of, uh, how that might affect us. But I can just ask you a question. Has there ever been a time that you've been made fun of or poked fun of or you've seen that happen to somebody else that they're being made fun of and alienated not because of of anything about them, right? Maybe they were born with a, um, a, a different color of skin, a different ethnicity. Maybe they, they talked slowly. They had a speech impediment. I know for my own self, I know that that, that idea that I myself have, have been kind of pointed out by or made fun of by who I was, not by anything that I could help. Boy, that, that carries a weight with me. Now I can get this idea of what it might have felt like to be labeled uncircumcised, meaning that you're not good. You have no part of what God is doing, right? At that time, it was Jewish people who had the, uh, that had the claims to the covenant, the promises of God. And Paul is saying that, that you were the uncircumcised group. You had no hope. You had no place. And he's doing this not to be mean, but he's, sh- but he's doing it to lay the foundation for showing how gracious and kind God is and was. Paul is saying as a community prior to Christ in verse 12 that we were totally cut off from God, but also from his people. Paul puts it bluntly when he says that you were separated from Christ. Now that's another term that has this Jewish kind of connotation to it, that the Christ was the Messiah. And that the Messiah by sort of definition was God's king. That he was the one that was to work out God's redemptive purposes. And so Paul says that you could not even claim that you had a savior, that you had a true king. And he, can, he kind of works down this progression. He says not only that, but you were, you were actually separated from the living God. And it's only through the work of Christ that one could produce true hope and true relationship. So Paul is asking them to remember, remember you had no hope. Remember you had no purpose, right? And, and, and the world might say, no. You know, I work a lot, so I'm defined by my work. Or I make a lot of money, so I'm defined by the wealth that I have. Or people of the opposite sex find me really attractive, so I, I know I have some value in that. But we can, just, we can see that that's a smoke screen, right? Like as soon as people want to define their hope in things that they tangibly have, we know that, that that's off. And Paul is saying that, no, that was you. You were walking in that way, and we all 
had no hope, but yet Christ has redeemed us and has um, spared us from the pit in which there was no hope. They kind of think of it this way. Um, I don't know if anybody else saw this. I watched a video on Facebook, and those can be absolute time wasters. But in this instance, it served well for my sermon or teaching. Um, <laughs> I have like, never mind. Um, anyhow, uh, so there's this video, and it's a guy, and I don't know if anybody else saw this. It's a, it's a video of a construction worker in Houston. And the shot begins, and you look, and he's, he's kind of sitting on this new construction uh, site, and it's an apartment, high-rise, probably five floors. And the top of the, 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 the new construction site is engulfed in flames. And everybody else got out. Everybody else is safe except this guy who's standing on a makeshift sort of deck uh, trying to find a way out of the circumstance, right? The flames are starting to get closer and closer, and you're like, man, how is this going to end? You know, and so as you're watching, this little, uh, out of the screen, corner of the screen, this little ladder comes, kind of sprawling out into, uh, into, the, into the, the shot, and it's a fire truck. It's one of the fire, sorry, Mike, I'm going to get it wrong, but the fire truck's ladders, the rescue ladder, um, and, and it's, it's inching its way closer, but it's doing it so painfully slow that you really don't know whether or not this guy's going to make it. I mean, he is, he's in serious trouble. Right? The fire is about ready to consume him, and as, as it's getting closer, parts of the structure start to fall, and it starts to fall on the man, and so you really, you really do not know how it's going to end. And as it gets closer, finally the man is able to reach out to the firefighter, and the firefighter pulls him in and is able to rescue him, and within a minute the whole building collapsed. This man was just moments from having his life engulfed in flames, and I think related to this point is that there's sometimes that we can, we can kind of, in our culture, treat our salvation as if, as if we just received enough grace to kind of bump us over the edge, right? Like, we're, or we're okay people. And I do, and you have these conversations with people, I do enough, right? And if God could just give me a little bit of grace, then he could just bump me over the top and then I could be saved. And what Paul is saying is, no, no, you were far off. You weren't near. You were far off. You had no hope. You had no Savior, you had no King that you could claim, and it's only by God's mercy and justice that He's able to, to have saved us. And so the question is, how, what does that mean for us? What does that mean in, in our lives personally? How does that even help? Well, I think as it goes on, uh, as it relates to what we talked about before, that a doctrine of grace is as only as solid as the chasm of sin that, sep- that we're able to see the chasm of sin that separated us between God the Father and ourselves, right? And once we can see like how bad we actually were, because it's easy to hide, hide in pride and say, ah, I wasn't that bad. No, remember how you were. Yeah, you really were that bad. For me, yeah, I really was that bad. You know, the other side of that is that we're too ashamed, so we, do, we don't even think about that. But Paul is saying, remember, remember how you were and who you were and and so what practical implications as we kind of remember and we find ourselves being uh, sort of basking in the grace that God has provided us, what does that mean for us practically with other people? Well, I think this. Do you know that you were not born a Christian? We may have been raised in a Christian culture, but you were not born a Christian. And, I, you know, I've been a Christian for 14 years, and I have, if I'm not careful, I can kind of think that, yeah, I mean, I've been a Christian enough, enough time that I've feels like I've been a Christian my whole life. But the truth is, you have not 
been a Christian, and none of us have been Christians our whole lives. So what does that mean? Well, it means somebody, whether a mom or dad or sibling or relative or friend, was caring enough to see the need and the hope that you lacked to share the gospel with you and to bring you, with the help and work of God, to bring you the gospel and and, and in that to show you that you need a Savior. And friends, it's easy to enjoy good fellowship with good friends and family, but if we are not actively participating in the work that God is doing in sharing the gospel, both with our families, right, men especially sharing the gospel with our kids, with our children and in our homes, but also with our coworkers and with other family members and in just our neighborhood relationships, then we're missing something. It's almost like we're forsaking the work and grace that others have shown us and choosing not to extend that to other people. So Mike will often ask you, are you reading your Bibles? How are you doing with that? And I'm going to be the one to ask you, are you sharing the gospel? How are you doing with that? Are you doing it in your homes? Are you doing it in your families? Because a remembrance of who we are shows us not only that we need Christ, but it also should stir in us a desire to share our faith with others. Moving on to the second point, uh, Paul says that we must rest in what Christ has done, and that's verses 13 through 18. Paul uses a parallel, but just like he did in, in um, chapter, or verses 1 through 10, to show that despite uh, where we were, Christ has worked not only to save us individually, but to unite us in um, of all people of different stripes, different colors, into one redemptive people. What is it that Christ has done? Well, it's, it's four things that, that Paul lays out for us, that he has brought us near, that he has made us one, that he has reconciled us to each other, and that ultimately that we have gained access to the Father. Far off, again, is a term used often with Gentiles. So in Deuteronomy 28, when God talks about, um, the, these are the, if you obey my covenant, this is the blessings that you'll receive. He goes on to say, these are the curses that you're going to receive by not obeying my covenant. And he tells God's people that if you don't, that I will send a nation that is far off for them to be invaded by. In contrast, Psalm uh, 148 describes Israel as a people that he has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. Praise the Lord. That is to say that, that us who were once far off from God is actually because of Christ now been brought near to him. We have a new reality that we are near God. Paul notes also in verses 14 and 15 that because Christ is our peace, we have ultimately become one, Jew and Gentile. We are now being, part, uh, being put together in this new type of humanity. So what exactly does that mean? How is Christ being peace related to us being one? Well, in some sense... What Paul means has to, has to, by peace, has to mean that it stands in opposition to what he means, whatever he means, by the dividing wall of hostility. Right? Peace is the exact opposite of hostility. The Greek word for peace is Irene, which is kind of what we think of it. When we think of, of peace in our minds, we think of the end of strife, the absence of strife. However, in, in, in the Hebrew context for that word, shalom means a lot uh, different. It has more nuance to that. That, the, that there, there's this interrelational aspect of it. That you that it that peace in that sense is used to describe harmony between people, the wholeness that is experienced between personal relationships. That is to say that Christ is the central figure who is able to 
uh, reconcile and destroy hostility that otherwise might be between one another. And therefore, we are able to live in sort of gospel-centered communities in which uh, together that we can um, seek peace between one another. Uh, Paul says, what is the thing that is causing hostility? Or he, he, he addresses what, what, what is causing hostility in verse 15. And we see that it's the keeping of laws, of commandments expressed in ordinances. You know, the interesting thing that he talks about in 12 is that you, you all are not circumcised. That is the thing that is done by the hand. And what, what does Paul mean by that? What does he mean by laws and ordinances? And I think part of it, and there's a lot of discussion of what Paul could mean by that, but it's those things that basically on the exterior practices that just say you're not one of us. You don't, you don't do what we do. You don't eat the way we eat. You don't drink the way we eat or drink. And so Paul is saying that, that in that, um, Christ is breaking down those walls of hostility that would normally be there. But he ends up kind of turning it on us, doesn't he? Because he's not only saying that the, the walls of hostility that were there, that were broken out, actually what was going on because circumcision is something that can only be done with the hand, right? It doesn't change the interior of a man that both Jew and Gentile were hostile to God. That we all collectively had offended and were offended, um, offending God in our own sin. Yet it is through Christ and the gospel of peace that we can now be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. So there's this double alienation that God is, is giving uh, the readers to this and is giving us and he's pointing at us like we all had been hostile to God and God being holy and just was hostile to us and yet he, brought, he brings us near. Paul says in Ephesians 3.12, um, he, he talks about this, that not only that the hostility has ended, but now, and he carries on in this, in this passage, that we have access to the Father in verse 18. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 3.12 says, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And so this is what I, what I, I think that Paul means by this, and this is what Peter affirms in one of his letters when he says, and he talks about the priesthood of all believers, that because of what Christ has done, now we all can have direct access to the Father. Uh, this is another uh, seminar. I have a few seminary stories today, and this, is a, this was one that was sort of funny but sad at the same time. Um, I had a, a buddy, well, before I start that, you know when you tell somebody that you're doing ministry and they don't know you, right? You never know what you're going to get, kind of reaction you're going to get from people. When you tell them, that, like, if you tell them, uh, some people, you tell them you're doing ministry and they we, Grace and I were at a bank one time, and we told the guy that you know I was I was going to be a, I wanted to be a, doing doing ministry. And he was like, oh, he's like, well, you know what it's like to ask people for money all the time, you know, kind of like cut like, you know, like, you know, kind of cut jokes, you know, and some so some people don't they just don't they don't like you when you tell them that for whatever reason. Other people it's like their whole attitude changes and they become super sweet, and some people get like uh, yeah they just get kind of awkward. And th- and so why I say that is a guy. A friend of mine was at a butcher shop in, in St. Louis. And he was there, and he was getting some uh, steaks and, and uh, some other meat, and he struck up a conversation with the owner. And the owner was like, well, what are you doing in St. Louis? Now that you, you know, I guess somehow the conversation about what he was doing um, came up, that he just moved. And he was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to seminary because I want to do ministry. And he's like, oh, that's great. And so they just they start talking, and uh, after a while, the guy wraps up his steaks and gives it to him. And he's like, you know what? This is on the house. He's like, what? Why? He's like, well, 
He's like, I could use a little extra prayer in my life right now, and I know you can say a special prayer for me, right? We're kind of shocked by that, but let's be honest. Isn't that how a lot of people operate in typical sort of nominal Judeo-Christian world, right? Especially in in certain areas of of the country that somehow uh, certain people have a kind of corner on what God's doing. It's that old model of that the priest is the one that mediates the blessings to his people, and so if you you go to the, the priest or you, uh, you, you find the right person, like a, you know, uh, somebody that you, you think in your mind, well, he's a good person, he works for God, so certainly he must have God's ear. I, I see that all the time. And what's lost in that is it's to say, no, like, I don't, I'm not special. And if you knew who I was, you would, not, you, know, like you, would, you would just want nothing to do with me you know, because I'm not special. Like, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're doing ministry, but... I wish you could see the depths of grace in which God has bestowed upon me and that not only that is true, that you can have that same access to the Father that I have. That the Pope or Billy Graham or your favorite Christian author, whoever it is, does not somehow have more of a corner on God's ear than you do. And so we can go to the Father and we can petition with our own prayers, with our own mouths, on our own knees, and relate to him because that is the amazing power of the work of Christ. We have access to the Father. And listen, I, these are just more kind of heady, like doctrinal uh, propositions. And so some people aren't moved by any way in that sense. And that's, in some sense, uh, understandable. In other sense, it's incredibly sad because Christ has redeemed us. And he hasn't done it in, in a way in which we can curry favor with God. No, we, he's done it in a way so that now we have access to the Father and we can draw from that strength and that intimacy. So Paul has shown us um, not only where we were, but now where we are, that we can start to draw from the benefits of, of what Christ has done, how he's reconciled us. But the, 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 at the end of the day, you still find yourself maybe asking, your, uh, asking this question, so what? Okay, I understand that. So what does that mean for me now? How does that mean? You've, you've talked so much in the beginning about relationships. What does that mean with implications to this community? Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. Actually, I'm not going to tell you. Paul's going to tell you. Um, and it's the third point that since God has reconciled us, we must uh, live or reflect who we really are. That's verses eight, uh, 19 through 22. So here's the progression. We Gentiles... We're once estranged from God and his people and himself, but through the power of Christ, we have been made new. We've been made new as, as a people together who have been reconciled to, him, God, to God himself, and now through this, we have access to him. And so Paul says that you have a new status. Well, what are those? The, you know, it's kind of follow the, the teaching. What is that new status? What, if, what has he given us? Well, the first is what verse 19 describes, that we are now citizens and members of the household of God. We live in the United States of America, which is the most powerful country, nation in the world. That's obvious, right? And not only that, but I heard one pastor describe it this way. To be born in the United States of America is basically like winning the lottery, the the human global lottery, right? It's the Disney world of the world, right? That we have so much, despite all of our dysfunctions, we have access to so much services, so many resources, so much wealth, so much power, and, and, and so we get to enjoy, as citizens, we get to enjoy the privileges of being a part of this great country. 
But the thing about it is, like, I was reading an article um, online about just how uh, people suspect that any time we could be uh, attacked once more uh, by, by terrorists. And, and what that really kind of brings to the forefront is that despite being a great nation and a great power and citizens of that great nation, we don't know what 10, 15, 30, 50, 100 years could bring for this country, do we? Sure, we might think, we can estimate. Some maybe think it's going to be worse. Others might think it's going to be better. But we can't say with certainty what our citizen, the value and the worth that our citizenship has for the future. However, what does God say about his citizens? Well, Jesus says in the Great Commission that know that I will never leave you. Jesus says elsewhere in Acts that his spirit would never depart from his church, that he would never leave his bride. And we come as Christians knowing that the bride is the church and that Christ died for his church. And so the one thing that we have that we can say for sure is that as citizens of God's people, we know what side is, is the winning side and we know who will reign forever, which is King Jesus. And so that citizenship that we may, uh, may have in, in, in kind of uh, in the American sense, that's a great thing that we should enjoy, but we even have a greater citizenship in being a part of God's new people. Verses uh, 22 or 20 through 22 also talk about the fact that we are part of God's temple. So uh, back in the Old Testament, you know, there was a physical temple in which people would come and, and make offerings. And in that time of Jesus' time, just to kind of refresh our minds on how uh, separated Gentiles and Jews were, you'd see reliefs and there'd be a Gentile court, and that was where the Gentiles, uh, proselytes and others, could congregate. But if they moved past any part other than that area, there was a relief that would basically say, if you cross past here, uh, your life has been threatened. You have sacrificed and forfeited your life, right? There was a clear wall that was divided. But now God is saying that I'm using Gentiles and Jews to build my temple, and that you are actually the members, the stones of this temple, but before that, he says that Jesus is the cornerstone, that he's, what's, he's the center in which the church is built, the firm rock upon all other members are being built around. And then he says that, that also included that the foundation is the apostles and prophets. Well, what does that mean? Well, I think John Stott puts it right when he says that the, that the apostles and prophets are to, are to be and to be thought of as the uh, organs of divine revelation bearers of divine authority. It's the testimony of God's word. That that is the foundation, that that is the center of, of which God's temple is being built. So that means that just as the integrity of a building is assessed by the sureness of its foundation, so should, if you all are checking out our church and visiting for the first time, you should check and sift out a church by the ways in which they choose to or choose not to affirm the centrality and supremacy of God's word in the life of the church, its leaders, and its members. One of the reasons why, and a beautiful reason why, we were given this building is because the people of this fellowship knew that we would preach the gospel, that we would, um, that we would affirm the supremacy of God's word for our lives. And so we, that is the foundation. As, as foundations begin to crack, so the whole building starts to fall apart. And it's interesting about, and this is, I'm going to go off on a digression, that's okay, but as, as mainline uh, churches begin to move away from uh, the inerrancy and supremacy of God's word, it's amazing how the, those, those denominations are 
just losing people in not only hundreds, but thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. And I have some thoughts about that, but that's for another sermon for another day. Anyhow, we are supposed to live in a way that is united together, uh, reflecting this new reality that we are one in Christ, building up, being built up, and God's continual building up of his temple through his people. And and it made me think about uh, the way in which we unite with each other, the way in which we love one another, the way in which we live life together as as a testimony of God's temple. Um, Recently, I got to help a friend move who happens to go here at this church, him and his family. And um, it was a day in which they had a lot of obstacles. You know, it was one of those, as one thing would happen, another thing would kind of come up. And, and people, you know, it was like, man, are they going to get to move in today and that sort of thing. And um, thankfully, they hired two movers who were uber strong. So that means I got to kill, carry a lot of pillows and boxes. Um, but I, we, as I was helping them and as other people from the church would come in and out, um, these movers that were there, they just got to watch. And at, at the very end of the day, they told my friend, they said, man, you have some people that really love you. Like, I'm not a Christian, but these people are awesome that they would do this. We've moved a lot of people, but we've never seen this type of support. And I just want to give an attaboy for a moment for the church as general, that, and this has been said before, that we really do love each other. Um, I was in a, a meeting earlier this week with someone, and, he, and I, you know, they're just talking about, I was talking about, you know, meeting at Care Paravel, and they were asking what the size was, and they're like, man, you've, you've grown that much without having a building? And I never thought about that. Like, wow. Like, I remember where we were and where we've come. Yeah, that's a big deal. Like, we haven't had a building, and people like buildings. They like programs. They like facilities, and we've yet we've grown. God has continued to grow us. Why is that? Well, I think it's because we love each other really well. We love each other really well. And so if, if you are visiting, this is just a time to invite you into uh, what we're doing, the pulse of what we do. We do love and serve one another well. I've heard elders say that if something happened to themselves, that they knew the other elders would support them as, as a family, the, 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 the um, spouse, the widower, that they know that they would be in good hands. And I really do believe that about this, this body. But it's important as we note that, that the love, that type of love has to be looking outwards at the same time, right? If we could just take this wall out for a moment and that wall over there, it'd reveal a whole neighborhood of people who some uh, know Jesus and others don't. And yet we have this beautiful, wonderful facility that now we can be an extension of Christ's redemptive work here in this neighborhood. So the question is, what are we going to do about it? Right? What are we going to do about it? I'm not the one that answers that question, right? Like That's us collectively uniting together as brothers and sisters in Christ, defining what God is wanting to do for us in this place, in this time. But it has to start with being united. So I, I pray that we will not get any, any disputes of wall colors or carpet colors or what, light fixtures, I don't know. Um, but that we, would, that we would be knitted together by the work in which Christ is doing here in this place and in this time. That is really the beautiful thing of Christian community. You know, I come from a broken uh, family. Man, I come from a broken family. And yet, uh, Jesus has invited me into his household. And I often pray this with uh, college students that I'm working with. Uh, You know, I don't know you outside of the fact that we are brothers in Christ, that we share that common bond. And the truth of the matter is, I like, you know, like 
we're, you know, like, we all have our different likes. We all have our different, you know, oddities and, 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 and weird, uh, I don't know how to describe it, like hobbies that either, either way we, would, we wouldn't hang out with each other, right? But yet, because of what Christ is doing, that he's bringing us together, uniting us as one body, like we come together in worship and spirit and truth because of Jesus, not because we're all part of the same group or because we've signed up and we're in the same country club. No, it's because of the gospel. And so I just want to... Uh, I just want us to remember that, that what is our salvation for? Well, it's to do life together. It's, it's to embrace a way and identity of proclaiming what Christ has done for us individually, but also for us as a community. So let us come now and worship with one another, united in light of how Christ has brought us together as one body to serve and glorify him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Lead us now in worship. Let this be a continuation of what you're doing, the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts. Thank you, Father, for your Son, Jesus, in whom we have forgiveness of sins. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.